This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 18th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Endangered Species Act deserves some reform, but even as it operates now, there are some different choices that regulators can make to improve its effectiveness at preventing wildlife endangerment. Brian Yablonski, executive director of the Property Environment Research Center, discusses how this applies to grizzly bears. We spoke last week in Bozeman, Montana. How has our understanding of the Endangered Species Act changed? since it was enacted? Oh, Caleb, that's a great question. Um, I would say when the act, act was passed, I think there was a genuine sense that we had species that were imperiled, in danger, on the verge of extinction. And this was the, to some extent, this was the trauma center uh, for endangered species. This was to keep them from going extinct. Um, over the last few decades and since the passage of the act, we've had a, a pretty good track record of keeping wild species from going extinct. I think there are about 1,600 domestic uh, wildlife species on the endangered species list, and 99% of them have not gone extinct. But um, what sort of has evolved through the years is a failure to truly recover these species or to interpret species as recovered or not, because I would maintain um, and we'll talk about this, that there are species that are recovered. It's just over the decades has become harder and harder to get a species off the endangered species list. And that's been the evolution of the act. So why is it so difficult for species that essentially by all accounts uh, have recovered uh, to get those species delisted? And why, why, why is it even important to do so? Well, People love animals. Um, if I've learned anything in being in the conservation movement, uh, wildlife just uh, brings out in people this uh, incredible emotion and passion. And some of these species that we're talking about are large megafauna, charismatic species like grizzly bears that just uh, people, people have this uh, notion that unless the federal government is managing the species, the species is in danger, that the states are not capable, that private actors are not capable, that uh, conservation organizations are not capable, that the federal government is the only one that's capable. And really what they're missing is these species, even when they're on the list, are primarily being managed by states and with the uh, cooperation of landowners and with the engagement of, of organizations that are helping out. The federal government's just a, just a small slice of the protection pie here. Um, but again, there's, there's this notion you, you notice whenever a species comes up for delisting or downlisting, meaning going from endangered to threaten, uh, the headlines, be it, uh, manatees in Florida or grizzly bears in Montana is, uh, grizzly bears are losing protection. Manatees are losing protection. And that's the fallacy. It's just management is just going to shift to the States and the States manage 90% plus of the wildlife in America today. Okay. So uh, with specific respect to grizzly bears, this was the topic that you and I uh, talked about before we started recording. What are the facts on the ground with respect to that species recovery and sort of the, the incentives uh, that govern whether or not it ought to be removed from the endangered species list? Well, let's, uh, let's start with geography, where we're sitting right now. So we're sitting in Bozeman, Montana, and I think by most accounts, folks would say uh, Montana and Wyoming and Idaho are the epicenter for grizzly 
populations in America today. So everybody who lives here, when we go out and and hike or walk our dog back in the woods, knows to be bear aware. We take bear canisters of bear spray with us. We make noise. We're very sensitive that we're we're in their habitat. It wasn't always the case. Um, bears back in the 1970s, and when when I'm talking about the Montana, Wyoming, Idaho region. This is the Yellowstone grizzly bear subpopulation that we're talking about. Um, I don't know if you remember seeing or your, your listeners remember seeing pictures of bears feeding at dumps in Yellowstone National Park with visitors sitting on the hillside and watching bears feed at dumps. Um, there, was, there was some hunting of bears. There was habitat encroachment. But bears were getting uh, – the bears that were there in Yellowstone were getting used to being fed uh, by folks. And um, – and, and that the biologists realized that was a bad thing. That was habituating bears. So they weaned bears from these dumps in Yellowstone National Park, and the bears were left to sort of fend for themselves. It created uh, a lot of conflict with people because they had become sort of habituated to humans for food. And so a lot, a lot of bears in the late 60s, early 70s, when they were closing these feed dumps down, uh, were having to be euthanized. Um, I think there were something like 150 bears that were euthanized in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and all of this, all this together, when you put all those factors together, the grizzly bear pop population essentially crashed to about 136 bears um, at the time of their listing in 1975. So let's look at the science and, and where we're at today um, through, through uh, efforts by the states and the federal government uh, through cooperation with landowners. Um, the grizzly bear populations have rebounded to an excess of 700 bears in the area. Um, so much so, um, I'll, I'll use a, a conservation scientific term here, that they, many biologists believe that the bears have reached their carrying capacity. In other words, the, the amount of population that a particular habitat can hold. And this habitat's about 20 million acres. Picture, uh, picture, picture the size of, picture Rhode Island, New Hampshire and uh, and Connecticut all uh, or Massachusetts all lumped together. That's about the size of the Yellowstone ecosystem, and 700 bears is about what that what that ecosystem can hold at this point. So, as um, the former U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director for Barack Obama, uh, Dan Ash said at one point, is that the Yellowstone bear, with the rebound that it has had, is at its carrying capacity, and it's now exporting bears outside of the ecosystem. And that export means they're going onto farm ranch lands. They're going getting into residential areas. There's a lot more conflict. So if you look at conflict numbers, uh, say from the 1990s to today, um, the annual conflict numbers have almost tripled, um, which is a sign. It's a sign of the bear's health, and the bear is going to keep uh, keep moving out. But the science, when the scientists were trying to to figure out the metrics for delisting the bear and taking the bear off the endangered species list. They set about three three metrics, and they evolved over 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 uh, 30, 30 years. But essentially, five hundred bears was the target, and there was supposed to be um, certain mortality rates that they stayed below, and certain breeding females, uh, you know, that they had to uh, that they had to maintain. In the case of the Yellowstone grizzly bear, um, according to the scientists and the metric that the bear biologists, and these are federal biologists, state biologists. Uh, tribal biologists that are involved in this, according to the metrics that they've set, the grizzly bear here has met the recovery goals for 16 years straight. 
In other words, 16 years ago, you could have petitioned to have the grizzly bear removed from the endangered species list. So in this particular case, this is a species that if you're a fan of the Endangered Species Act, you would hold this out as the success story. I mean, and, and the, the Endangered Species Act needs success stories, but this just keeps, keeps getting tripped up at the goal line. Now, maybe I'm uh, too cynical, but the, my sense is that you have a bunch of animals, some of which are you know, in, in very dire straits. They're, the survival of a species is at stake. Uh, they go onto the Endangered Species Act listing, uh, one of the two lists that are that are maintained by the Endangered Species Act, and uh, at some point, um, bureaucrats, uh, people who advocate on behalf of uh, bureaucratic control of of lands throughout the United States, say, "Well, look, if if this animal gets delisted." we lose a lot of power to control private landowners' decisions. Is that really fair or is that, is that maybe, am I overstating the importance of that? I think, you know, it's interesting in the case of the grizzly bear, I would say that's probably um, an overstatement. Uh, I know, I actually know personally the federal biologists who are in charge of this process. Uh, the, the gentleman who has been doing grizzly bear management in Yellowstone National Park for the last uh, 30 to 40 years is a good friend of mine. They want the bear delisted. Like they spend their whole lives trying to get the bear off the list. And when a political or judicial decision keeps the bear on the list, that's a, that's a professional slap in the face to them. Uh, you know, they, they want to see these bears thriving and out there because they, they care and they've spent their whole lives researching these bears. Um, so I feel, you know, when you have a case where a bear is, or, or a species is ready to be delisted, and and it's not, or it's it's brought back on the list. I feel for the biologists. I feel for the government biologists who are really these are the boots on the ground. I mean, these are the people that uh, judges should be listening to, uh, members of Congress should be listening to. So there, to to your point, I think there there gets to be a political process. But I don't think the political process is coming from the 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 grassroots managers of wildlife and uh, and habitat. Uh, for these species, because again, it's a point of pride for for these folks if they can get if they can get a species off the list. Now, I know that we've talked about this uh, related issues uh, before, but what should happen to the Endangered Species Act to make it uh, function better and allow it to meet the purposes for which it was created? Well, it's a great question. There are a lot of efforts uh, underway uh, right now in Congress. Um, Senator Barrasso has a has a bill, the senator from Wyoming, that is looking at modernizing the Endangered Species Act. Um, I come at it from a standpoint of there's a there's a carrot and stick approach to endangered species, and and certainly in certain cases there is a role for for the, for the stick and and regulation. But more often than not, if you get the incentives right for the carrot, you're going to get um, equally, if not better, outcomes at the end of the day. So. Let me give you an example. Uh, right now, for purposes of regulation, for purposes of the stick, um, whether you're listed as an endangered species or threatened species, it is essentially the same treatment in terms of if you're a private landowner, what you can do to your land or alter habitat. Um, it's called a take permit. You'd have to get a take permit. And and this, it doesn't matter whether you're endangered or threatened. Well, endangered and threatened mean two different things. When Congress passes act, 
Endangered meant you were right on the cusp of going extinct. Threatened meant you were in a better shape, and then long range, you could go extinct. But there's really no reward right now from going from endangered to threatened because of the way the act is, is interpreted and applied. And the, the current administration actually has a rule proposal right now that is getting ready to be finalized, um, hopefully in the next few weeks here, that would actually bring that distinction back. Uh, in other words, if you were a threatened species going forward, uh, the take permits and sort of the severe regulations would not exist or would not exist in a blanket fashion. Right now, they're just sort of, they, they exist blank, you know, as a blanket regulation. It would at least be a case-by-case -case view of it. And it, it would apply to species going forward on the list. That, that small change alone can help get the incentives right. It can help encourage states and landowners to work to bring a species from endangered down to threatened or to get a species that may be listed up to threatened you know, or endangered not to, not to move forward on the list. And, and it should encourage efforts. That, that small change alone is drawing enough opposition and concern from, from uh, some of my brethren in the conservation community. I say, look, if only 2% of the species that have been on the list have ever been recovered, let's give it a try. You know, it's try after 50 years, it's try time to try something a little bit new here and see if the, if the lessening of regulation can help incentivize uh, behaviors that are good for the species. Yeah, as, as I think I've talked with you and I've talked with uh, other uh, conservationists about this, it, it, the way things are structured now, landowners don't want their land to be habitat for animals that are endangered because that brings with it a whole host of regulation. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. It's, and the biologists would tell you their land's not even suitable for some of these species. I mean, this is truly, when these bears come out of the Yellowstone ecosystem, um, they're coming out of uh, two national parks, six national forests, three national wildlife refuges, but they're essentially coming on to, to range, cattle range, grazing uh, range that is not uh, truly appropriate uh, for a grizzly bear at this time. So not only is it is it a challenge to have the bear on your land because of the regulations and restrictions that might come with it, it's not even good for the bear at the end of the day uh, if, if we're really concerned about the bear. And what's interesting is you've got a bear who this is sort of the top of the food chain. They're big carnivores. They're used to eating elk, uh, maybe bison calves, uh, uh, things like that. And, and picture this, you've got a, a bear who comes out of Yellowstone who is seeing a cow for the first time in their lives. <laughs> this, is, this is, cows aren't roaming through Yellowstone National Park. So it gets real enticing for a bear um, to potentially make that leap from an elk uh, calf or a bison calf to a cow calf. Uh, and, and quite honestly, right now, landowners are tolerating and they're living with it. Um, they're taking measures to try to keep cattle safe, keep their, keep their cow safe. Um, but there's, there's a cost to it. And, um, and, and they're, like I said, these people, I don't think, I think there's this misinterpretation, uh, of folks in the West that somehow they're anti-bear or, you know, they don't like grizzly bears. Most of those ranchers that I talk to, I mean, they love grizzly bears. They, they, they recognize they're a vital part of the ecosystem, but at the same time, you know, their operation, their cattle operation is, is a real concern to them and how, as these conflicts increase, uh, we just need to find better ways to mitigate those conflicts and, and increase tolerance of the landowners. And I think that's the key. If you get, if you get tolerance and buy of the landowners, these are reasonable folks, but they live, work and play where these grizzlies are moving into. And there ought to be 
serious um, serious consideration for for how this impacts them and what role they can play. Brian Yablonski is executive director of the Property and Environment Research Center. We spoke last week in Bozeman, Montana. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.